is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, this Friday we are without TK, but it's all right. I have a replacement that I believe will be bigger, faster, stronger, and better. Levi Morehouse, welcome. Hello, welcome. I, I wonder how far down your substitute list you went before you got to me, but I'm glad <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> no, not you're like the you're like the substitute refs in the NFL that one season. Uh, you know, people complain, but if we're honest, they were better and more efficient and less showy. You know, so uh, no, I'm, I'm can't argue with any of that. Can't thrilled to have you join. So the last time we had you on. We had you on very, very early, and then you did uh, one of the parts in the four-part series, Beginner's Guide to Startups, and that was before you had raised money. You were talking about building a, a business without raising money, and you had done that for six or seven years with Ceteris, and not long after that episode aired, you actually did go raise money. So now we're talking to somebody who has raised uh, $4.2 million in Series A funding. Uh, congratulations first, but how is that changed things? Has that made it a different experience being, a, being the CEO? Thank you. Yeah, yes, it, it absolutely has. Um, and kind of, again, we've been building towards that. So it wasn't as big of a difference going from where we were to where we are now. Had we done that three years before, five years before. Um, so we were getting into the spot where we were kind of operating like a, a bigger business, but what it's allowed us to do is really build out the team, most importantly, the team of people a lot faster as you're bootstrapping each, each great new hire at a high level takes a lot of new business to get to, to being able to afford and then kind of go into the next. So to, to kind of look at all your needs and say, we can really scale this business and to do it, we're going to need a great team and we're going to need a lot of other investments and resources and to do it not all at once, but a whole lot faster has been just incredibly fun. Um, obviously there's a lot of downsides to it. There's, you, you have to weigh those decisions in, in deciding to take on equity or not. A lot of the stuff we talked about in that, in that, uh, you know, that talk you and I had a few months back, but ultimately we did, we did go ahead and make that move and it's, it's, it's been great so far. Isn't that funny how, uh, I've noticed this a little bit and I'm sure you, you, you noticed it a lot, how raising money is one of those things that will get you so much praise and prestige that's mostly undeserved. I mean, the act of raising money is hard and you obviously had to do some really impressive stuff to get it, but there's this sort of idea like that's the big congratulations moment that you got somebody to invest in you where really that's just when they're like, it gets harder, the stakes get higher and the odds that you succeed are not that great even after raising money. So I just always find it funny, like, like people who casually follow they're like, you've made it. You've arrived. You're rich now. You raised four and a half million dollars, right? You've got it made in the shade. <laughs> it's like, no, you should. The real congrats should come <laughs> after we've taken that to an IPO or something like that. Yeah. Have you felt that at all? Oh, it's been it's been amazing. I mean, just the the perception of people that even people you've known forever that just go from thinking, oh, you're just muddling around in a small business to all of a sudden you're a superhero. Uh, like you said, raising money is not easy, but of all the things I did for the last eight years, it was on the easier end of that spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> Building the business to be functional and to grow to the size it was at was really, 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 really hard and, and still is. You know, Raising money wasn't, wasn't easy, 
but it certainly wasn't the hardest thing that we've done over the last eight years at all. So I'm far more in terms of real value being created and things happening to make this an absolutely amazing business that we all want it to be. That was low on the list in terms of the important things that had to happen to get us where we're ultimately going. Yeah. But it did become a thing that had to happen. And it wasn't easy and I'm proud of it. Not that I'm not proud of it. I'm just of all the things I'm proud of, it's not the top of the list by any stretch. Yeah. But it's but it's by light years the most important thing to everyone else that's ever met me. It's, it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> they don't understand the behind the scenes. Other than no. people that worked with me. They they're on my people that have been with us for a few years are like, that's cool. They're excited. It's a little social proof that they can tell their friends, you know, Hey, my company's now done something that's public. Um, but, but everybody knows the hard, the hard work, the heavy lifting is going on behind the scenes before, yeah, during and after raising money. It's like the things that are easy to see, get the attention. Cause you, you know, most companies are not publicly sharing their, their balance sheets or their monthly, you know, income statements. Uh, so to, to me, I'm always more impressed. Like, Hey, you know, I launched this thing and now it's profitable. That's a huge achievement. You know, like that, I'd be mm-hmm. really impressive, but that's not something you usually see. It, it reminds me in a way of TK and I were actually talking about this just the other day. He was saying he's back home in Chicago and, and you know, he's been living out in LA for some time and his nieces and nephews, they just think, they think he's like a comedian, an actor, a singer, a producer. They think he's all these amazing things because he moved out to LA and they associate LA with the entertainment industry. And we we're just talking about how sometimes it's really easy to get praise and credit um, for things that you haven't really done. Like, oh, you moved to a cool city. You moved to the Bay Area. You're in the startup scene. Oh, good for you, little Jimmy. Like, wow, we all praise you. And it, and it can be easy to let that make you get a little bit lazy. Like, I'm cool just because I moved to LA. Even though I'm no closer to being an actor than I was when I lived in Des Moines, Iowa, I get that sort of public recognition for something that people associate sure. with greatness. Um Anyway, yeah, the, it's, it's fascinating. On that point, though, to the to the positive side of that, that actually can work for you, I think is that yeah, I've always stayed away from those kind of things until we raise the money and we're trying to hire a development team and do things that we also needed some publicity. We needed PR. We needed more. You know, we needed to do things at scale. You can't just hire people you know or get connected to. You have to like get a broader audience and leveraging that stuff that I feel is a little you know, surfacy. It's not really the core of what we are. It's, it's, it's a proof point, but it's not in and of itself all that, all that amazing, but taking that and using it, whether that's going to a city that has more of that kind of stuff or raising money or anything that, you know, again, to the outside world looks like success. Yeah, get, getting on TV or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Those things aren't bad. They're not, but they're not in and of themselves amazing and great either, but you can use them to be a very valuable asset and tool. And I've found that just in the very short time since we raised money raising money, getting, getting kind of noticed for that, getting noticed for a few other things, making the Inc. 5000, becoming a best place to work, you know, things that again are just, they're just out they're, they're just, you know, things that happen because we worked hard and we built ourselves to a certain point, but using those and pushing them can actually generate you real value as in getting better employees, getting people to find you that never would have found you. And that's a real thing. So there's some give and take to it. You know, I don't completely discount it, but I certainly don't value those kind of accolades, um, you know, super highly, but they have been a little bit useful now kind of looking back over the last few months. It reminds me, you and I were just talking recently about the, one of the effects, sort of neurological effects of social media is you get this, uh, you know, this dopamine hit when you, you post something and it gets a lot Mm -hmm. of likes or clicks. And and so you pop onto Facebook every couple of minutes, see how your post is doing, whatever. And it's kind of that quick hit. 
And it's a similar phenomenon where, hey, I can get in the newspaper, I can raise money, I can do something that gets me quick hits. Those things are not bad, right? So the value of a, a network on Facebook where if you share something and it gets hundreds of likes, that's actually really powerful and a valuable tool for your business, your personal brand, whatever projects you wanna do, causes you believe in. It's not bad, but if you if you lose sight of the sort of the value of that as a tool and become addicted to just sort of the the high of the recognition, then it can maybe distract you from doing your work, making sure that you actually have a product, uh, you know, behind all the all the attention. Exactly, exactly. It can work for you. It's not the goal in and of itself, but it's it, it, you know, and it could probably work against you if that's all you focus on. So I'm with you. I like that example. So. Uh, Actually, I heard a, I heard somebody say one time, I've never, there's never been a business that failed because they didn't, they didn't have enough money. And he was talking about how you should just always be raising money. And there's something to that. And it's kind of like, you know, well, uh, there's also been entrepreneurs that had plenty of money, but ended up with 0.00% of their company. So exactly, exactly. money's not free. Unfortunately, <laughs> yes, that there's nothing wrong with that statement, except the fact anybody that gives you money wants something back. Right. So you have to weigh it. Or you can, I mean, I've seen recently a couple really good businesses that were growing at a, you know, couple, a hundred, 200, 300% a year growing really steadily. Well, going out and raising money at a very, very high valuation. This isn't happening as much now, but a few years ago, and then they continue to grow, but just not at a 10 X pace, maybe at a five X pace. And that's, basically considered a failure for the investors. And so the founders, CEO might get booted out of the company. So, you know, there are just times where understanding what comes with it. Um, Absolutely. So your company uh, is a good segue to something that I've been interested in for, for quite a while. I, I'm going to call them, cause we got to give a name to everything. The, the uh, sort of the unsung entrepreneur. So there's, there's, there's a couple categories of entrepreneur that everybody I think like knows about. If you say entrepreneur, people either think, the mom and pop shop, the guy that, you know, goes in every morning and, and opens his bakery and bakes the cakes and is, you know, running his thing. And and then the sort of venture backed tech startup, the person who goes out and raids a bunch of money from venture capitalists and is building this this massive thing that's going to turn into a billion dollar unicorn. But I think, correct me if I'm wrong statistically here, but I think the vast majority of entrepreneurs are somewhere in the middle and there's this thing that's so unsexy, but it's so powerful, which is the franchise model. And I got really, really interested in this when I read The E-Myth, uh, which is a great book, Yeah, um, which, which kind of Ray Kroc really was the, the, the main sort of inventor of this franchise model, if I'm uh, remembering correctly. But mm-hmm. and it's sort of this in between where you've got and these the reason I connected to Ceteris, your company, this is the majority of your clients. You serve franchise owners and provide them bookkeeping services. Um, mm-hmm. Correct. Be careful now that I just promoted that. If you're a franchise owner, go to ceterisinc.com and Levi will be blown away. We will demonstrate the full power of the Isaac Morales podcast. <laughs> you will have more business. I have people waiting on the phone lines right now. Yes. Headsets on. That's right. <laughs> Those old phone banks. But but so I wanted to ask you, you you talk with a lot of these franchise owners. This is kind of an interesting, unique class of people who, okay, you want to own a Qdoba or a Chipotle. 
So you you buy one, so you're sort of an investor, but you also have to kind of manage it or hire a manager, and then maybe you open two or three locations, and you've got this corporate support in terms of some processes and things that are uniform, but you also have a lot of, depending upon the franchise, a, a huge variation in how much sort of local choice you have to make as an entrepreneur. And so you're not inventing something new, like maybe a tech startup, and you're not sort of in there, you know, making pizza by hand, like a mom and pop shop. But the majority of places we go, much of our commercial life, getting your haircut, getting your, you know, whatever, uh, health, beauty, uh, fitness, places like gyms, a lot of the food we eat are in this model. And no one ever thinks about who are the people that own these. So from your, like, what have you learned about franchise owners that's sort of different from other entrepreneurs? Sure. No, it's a, it's a great group of people. And as you mentioned, we get to work with a lot of them. That's a big percentage of our customer base are franchisees that are operating in various franchise brands. Um, they're, they're a little different. They're kind of like that mom and pop business owner, but typically the ones we work with came from a corporate background. They've usually been successful at something in, in business. Um, and they get that itch that I, I talk a lot about in, in various places, but there's kind of that itch to, I want to try my own thing. And that entrepreneurial itch can be driven by a lot of things. Sometimes it's you want to invent and create something. And as Steve Jobs says, put a dent in the universe, you know, just truly change the world. But I think a lot of it, the vast majority of people that have that, they want more freedom, more independence. Um, that can be related to generating wealth. It can be just not having a boss, working the hours they want to work. It's not usually because these people want to be lazy. I, I rarely see a successful entrepreneur, even in franchising, that wants to be lazy, that doesn't like to work, but they like to work on their terms and kind of the outcome in their control. And so th so they've got a level of risk-taking that's, that's beyond a, a person that will never actually leave their job. They typically are a little bit analytical because they're researching what franchise concept should I get into. They usually kick the tires on a lot of them. They, they look at the financial models and things. And then they're stronger or weaker in different areas, but they get a sense for what to invest in. Ultimately, they pull the trigger and they go into a franchise concept. Most of them that we work with, and there's some people that just go, they buy a location, they, they just run one store. And that's a lot closer to that mom and pop owner where they get the manual from the franchisor that probably speeds them up a couple years on getting efficiently running their small business. And they just kind of continue to run that as kind of the owner operator. But most of them that we work with want to move beyond that. They open a location, they try to prove it out, get it right, and they do a second one and a third and a fourth. And you know, they keep growing it to where they actually have a very legitimate, substantial business um, where they're truly running it as a as a leader, you know, with managers under them and, you know, kind of a model that works and everything else. And they're, they're just great people to work with. They're they're entrepreneurial, but they're not totally heads in the cloud. There's nothing wrong with the heads in the cloud people. I like them as well. But there's just a great uh, it's a it's a great group of people. And they are very underlooked, I think. Um, there's not a whole lot of content created for these people besides the stuff the franchisors are providing them. You know, there's a lot of content around startup entrepreneur stuff. People follow that. It's very exciting and interesting. Um, there's not a whole lot of, of information out there for how to be that kind of main street um, with multiple locations and a little bit bigger than just your one stop, your one shop kind of entrepreneur. That's the person that we really like that person. They're a humongous force behind the uh, economy. Um, 
them alone, you know, small business generates roughly half the GDP and half the jobs in, in the U.S. Um, franchising is a, is, a, is a big part of that, and it's a fast-growing part. It's actually growing faster than the rest of the small business economy. I, I find it interesting you know, the, the process of deciding to to make the leap that you talked about. You know, you, you <laughs> I, I, I'm just – I'm picturing a – you know, someone going out to Joshua Tree with a bunch of, you know, mushrooms and taking them and having a vision quest and saying, I'm going to open a subway. That's it. That's the it's it's so different from that process of like the big dreamer who's going to invent a, you know, some kind of new space travel or whatever, which, again, that is awesome. I love that. But there's this idea. I think it's easy to feel like, well, I love the sound of being an entrepreneur, but I'm kind of a pragmatic analytical type of a person. And I don't, I don't, I'm not a hacker in my garage building stuff. So I guess this isn't for me. And I think it's just a really cool reminder. Like the process for somebody like this is I know I want that freedom and it's probably, I've probably succeeded for five, 10, 15, 20 years at other companies and just learning more and more that I value that freedom more and more. And now it's going to be a very rational decision of like, how am I going to take my resources and my knowledge and apply them? And whether it's restaurants or salons or, you know, tax preparation, whatever, mm-hmm. what, what am I going to do? And, and I think that's just a, I think that's relatable to a lot of people. I know a lot of practice participants we work with are like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I don't have a big idea. I have a lot to learn. And so we, you know, we tell them just go work with entrepreneurs and help be a part of building a successful business. And you don't have to feel stressed. Like, like you're, you know, if you're 25 and you haven't thought of an app to build that you're too late and entrepreneurship has passed you by, not, not even close, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, it's a, you're spot on. You're spot on. In most of the times it is that it's, it's, I want to be, have a business franchising's out there. Franchising does a good job advertising, right? So people know these concepts exist and, they start digging into them and it is very, sometimes it's a passion thing. And I have a lot of customers I work with that just are super into health and wellness. So they wanted, they, they believe at their core that routine massage is going to make people better. So they're passionate about that and they get into that business and they, you know, get into a massage envy or something. Um, but other people do look at it purely as this is a good concept. The model works, this location that I want to live or I live near needs it. I want to employ people. You know, there's usually a lot of good motives in addition to just I want to to make money or, or have a business. But but it's not always about you know just being super passionate about making sub sandwiches or whatnot, so, as, as you kind of mentioned. So one of the other topics I was wanting to talk about today, because uh, I was listening to a friend of mine, Matt Needham. He just launched a podcast, um, just the first episode called the Social Change Podcast, and he's talking about different ways to change the world. And you know, I, I think about this question a lot, and I kind of feel like you're almost better off not trying to change the world, not trying to say, how can I change the world? But saying, how can I do something that really resonates with me? There's this pithy quote, uh, TK and I both like, which is, um, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Uh, ask yourself what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who are fully alive. So this idea that... I love that quote, by the way. Yeah, like be a little more self I don't know what pithy means, but I like the quote. Well, I don't really either. I just use words with, <laughs> with confidence. Think, think about the way that you drive to the lane in basketball, which just like completely out of control, but you look so determined and confident that everyone just kind of gets out of the way and assumes you know what you're doing. That's how I am with language. It's just, just I, I, that's it. a good analogy that all of a sudden makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's effective. Uh, maybe not. 
Um, so, <laughs> so you think maybe all this, like, you know, ch- you should change the world, make a dent in the world is overvalued or maybe misunderstood. And, it, and is it undervalued to just pursue what you're good at, what you like, uh, be a little bit more selfish. Is that maybe, a, maybe that's even a better way to change the world. Um, but I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think changing the world's overvalued. I, I think that's great. I think it's amazing. I think people should strive for that. People that are cut out for that should strive for that. I do think it's underappreciated, probably undervalued to, to do the latter, what you just mentioned, to to go out and not try to change the world, but try to change your life, try to change your setup, that in and of itself, that is a really good thing. Um, and that should be valued and there should be you know, more help for people that want to do that. A, helping them acknowledge, that, like to the value point you make, that that's a valuable thing and that's good and that's actually going to help the world. You know, employing 200 people at a great if six different, you know, local restaurants in a franchise concept is a good thing. It's probably better than just having a job. You know, you're probably doing more for the world. It's not the same as creating the iPhone, but it's really, really empower- important. And it's a hugely important part of our history as a country that so many people have done that. So much innovation over time in terms of how to hire people, employ them, motivate people, you know, comes from just all these small opportunities that our country has always been so good at creating. So I think we do not really give that the value that it probably should have as a society. Yeah. There's, there's like two prongs there. The one is, I really do think that pursuing, you know, this is sort of like Bernard de Mandeville's famous essay, the uh, fable of the beads, you know, this pursuing sort of in this case, private vice or sort of your own selfishness has this public virtue, or it's a way of reframing Adam Smith's invisible hand that just pursuing what creates value for you in a free economy, you have to create value for others in order to, to earn you know value in return. So that probably has more world changing impact than deliberately trying to plan in many cases, what will you know sort of be good for the world. So there's that, there's sure. that prong, like what's good for the world, but even just on the individual level, There's so many people I think who, and I've been among them, in setting out to change the world, you look at what do I think the world needs and sort of disavowing the advice from that quote, and then I'm going to try to do that. And if the world, if you surmise that the world needs something that's different from what you're good at doing or what's good for you, you can become a very unhappy person. You're just like this angry warrior or this martyr. You know, I'm trying to do the thing that's good for the world and no one will listen and it's too hard and whatever. Or you'll go into politics and, and I, I don't think I've ever seen someone become a better version of themselves by involvement in politics. You know, like, <laughs> like so it, sometimes it's better just say, look, have a little more humility. I don't actually know what the perfect activity is to maximize you know, impact on the world. But I know something that I'm uniquely good at and I uniquely enjoy. And there's a pretty good chance that that's going to also be the thing that will let me have the best impact on the world. Because if it's, if it's unique to me, then it's probably my best use of, you know, time, resources, whatever. Completely agree. Completely. Even if it's not unique to you, even if you're like a many, many other people that are into that or do that well, it's, if it's what your it's in your sweet spot, you enjoy it. It makes you feel good and there's value being created there. It's, it's probably where you should be operating, whether that is changing the world or whether that's doing something a little less ambitious. So are you at all, do you follow like cutting edge technology stuff at all? Like what's happening in nanotech or whatever? 
Yeah, I follow technology a little bit. I wouldn't say super avidly, but I follow a lot of the tech publications on Twitter and whatnot. So I do keep up on, you know, self-driving cars and AI and things like that to a to a limited degree. I follow the headlines and occasionally dig in on the articles. What? So I was just listening to Peter Diamandis uh, and Dan Sullivan, this new podcast, mm-hmm. which I love called Exponential Wisdom. But they're talking about Diamandis has this company called uh, HL Human Life. Was it Human Longevity Incorporated, HLI? Uh-huh. Sure. And they're doing all this genome sequencing, all these different things to extend human lifespans. And, and he's like, you know, 100% confident that, you know, let's just say if you are under 40, the chances are incredibly high that you're going to live to 100. If you're under 20, there's a really good chance you could live to 150 or more. And so I got to thinking about this. Like, if you knew that you were going to live to, say, 150, do you think it would change? anything about where you put your time or your mindsets or what you're doing? Like what, what would change if, if you knew that was your expected lifespan? Sure. No, that's a great question. So for myself personally, I don't think it would change a lot because I feel like I'm, I'm doing something. I'm trying to create something that you know, creates wealth and the ability to have income, whether I'm capable of working and earning a living as a, you know, as a, as a laborer or not. Um, I think for people that haven't yet kind of taken that jump into being an entrepreneur, trying to start a business or build a passive income stream or something like that, it probably does change things because you start to think, you know, we all kind of have the framework of what our working life is going to be and what our retirement life is going to be. And that's going to take us to the grave. And if that grave moves out by 30 years or 40 years, that, that significantly changes the resources we're going to require to live on or how long we have to earn those and keep them. So I think it's absolutely as a, as humanity, it's a, it's a huge thing to be thinking about. Um, I think things like kind of the interconnected economy of, uh, the task economy or the, you know, there's all the different names for it, but essentially where your skills can be used and applied in a variety of ways, not directly always for an employer employee relationship, but using your skill at something that's valuable to the world and doing projects, um, you know, to get to get paid for them is is something great. As you look and say, okay, in that time frame, you know, what is my health going to be like? What am I going to be capable of doing? You know, how, what are things that I could do to make sure that I have the resources I need to live till I'm 150 or whatnot? It, it, I think it's going to be monumental change in, in everything if we extend human life by a significant percentage over what it is now. Yeah, I got really excited thinking about this. And first of all, Dan Sullivan was talking about how you know your your mindset, your beliefs about your age have like an impact on it. So, you know, when people, I mean, it's very well known that when people retire, uh, they tend to die (laughs) relatively soon (laughs) if they have nothing to focus on. But he was just saying, if you tell yourself, I'm going to live this, this age and sort of expect it, it can change your, so, so I thought, all right, I want to, I want to live 120 years so I can see a couple years of the 22nd century. That sounds fun. But, um, (laughs) but I thought, you know, it is, isn't that kind of cool to think like I could live, I could be through an entire century, like from start to the end. Um, that whole Y2K scare to kick it off. <laughs> you remember we were at a new I thought that party. was the end. That's and, just the beginning. Yeah, everyone was like, are the lights going to go off? That was amazing. <laughs> and then when they didn't, I got to eat all of the um, shelter food that people had stored. Yes, I think I'm still eating that from various <laughs> Like <places>. oatmeal and <laughs> rice. Yeah. Packed. That was amazing. That saved me <laughs> so much money. Uh, but But I thought, you know, what this changes in my mind is kind of – the value of 
I guess, social capital and your own human capital. Because if you're kind of, you know, increasingly we don't need physical labor. Fewer and fewer people make a living on physical labor. And the, the, those people are great, by the way. They oh, are. Some need for them. So oh, not absolutely. To down, not to downplay that, but yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. Less, so, less but but and, and as the older you get, the less able you are to do that. But but if you, if if the things that are reaping the highest rewards are more um, your creativity, your mind, then kind of investing in that even more heavily, and saying, hey, this is the asset I'm going to have with me. So. Um, who knows what's going to happen to my 401k over the next hundred years, but I can tell you this compounding effect. If I invest in building social capital, goodwill, and a network with people, think about how powerful that could be. Think about someone who's got a hundred year long, you know, whatever social media presence that they've been building. I mean, or, or just a, or just a Rolodex, you know, if you're, if your mind is still mm -hmm. sharp and agile at, at age 100, like maybe a 60 year old today, think about the people, you know, like, you know, you go with investors, what's one of the values they bring to the table. They're a little older. They've been there. They're 50, 60, whatever. And they've got, they've got history with so many people. Oh, we built a company together. We did this. They can pull that in and that makes their value so high. Imagine if you could add another 50 years onto that, you know, how much that yeah. could pound. That's, a, that's, a, that's exciting thought. And yeah, I think that's absolutely critical because who knows what the physical capabilities are as we extend that life, but the mental and the that's a, that's a really good. Yeah, thought. when I'm just like a, a voice in a box, you know. <laughs> but but it, it just made me think like it, it almost made me just want to double down on the kind of activities that I already. I would always rather invest my time, money, resources in something that enhances my human capital rather than sort of puts it into out there in the ether, something I can't control. You know, put it out into this, put a bunch of money in the stock market and hope that it increases in value and someday it can pay for me. How about I put money in myself and know that what's going to pay the biggest dividends is, is what I bring to the table, my ability to command, you know, resources with the value I create or whatever. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I've always tended to lean that way as well. Not that I am any expert and I'm sure there's a lot of smart people putting money in 401k uh, so more, more aggressively than I am. You're always so much more <laughs> humble about this than I am because there'll be times when I'll say, Levi, I'm thinking about taking this big risk. Uh, or putting a bunch of resources into X, Y, and Z. What do you think? And you're always like, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you, you should consider it, whatever. And you're very like sensible about it. And you never want to say, you know, go for it. But then I'll say, well, what would you do? And you say, oh, I would do it in a heartbeat. <laughs> but, I, but I'm willing to admit that I'm crazy and not everyone has the same. <laughs> That's exactly true. So yeah, my risk tolerance and my level of crazy or <laughs> you know insanity is is slightly different so i, have the, I, I always like to hedge my opinions i like that, to just point. take my whatever opinion that i like barely believe and then i just like <laughs> <laughs> talk about it uh i figured you know other people will will push back um okay so so there's a couple other things that I, I was wondering if you wanted to chat about are you down i'm down Let's all do right it. so i had this idea that what if what if you were like let's say really interested in startups and you know that a big startup hub is San Francisco now and you said I don't know anything about this I want to learn a lot about it there are a lot of things you could do but let's say you had no baseline knowledge no coding skills nothing to really bring to the table I thought what if you just said I'm gonna go live in San Francisco for a year and get information from all the smartest people I can out there and I'm gonna do this totally free and how this would work is you go become an Uber driver in the Bay Area and you just 
try to hang out in all the areas where you think are most likely to have founders and investors and whatever, and just make it your goal to learn one new thing from each person you pick up every day. And your Uber income will pay for you to live. You can live, you know, for a year. And like, I don't know, I wonder what you could learn or the same in like finance in New York. Is this a crazy idea? No, I think it's an incredible idea. And I think it's, you know, that's been done, I think for probably all of human existence in terms of being a server at a, at a restaurant or something, but the, but the personal nature and the one-on-one time you have as an Uber driver is probably unlike anything we've seen in a long, long time in terms of just going to a place where there's a heavy concentration of people you want to learn from that will never give you the time of day if you were to just ask for it, but you can get them in a car in an Uber. And I'd say half the time or more, that person's going to be willing to talk for a few minutes. Well, and the window's closing. I think it's just beautiful. That window's closing. You're absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, they're going to automate that is an incredible, incredible idea. I just almost uh, I hadn't like, thought of it. That's I love it. That's beautiful. Well, I know because I used to think like you know if I if I didn't have kids or you know wasn't married or anything, what are like crazy things that I might try? You're know, like, oh, I could go work on a crab boat for a season or you know. And then I, I just thought, man, I would just identify someplace where there's some really interesting people, and just be an Uber driver for a year and make it my goal to learn one thing. And when they get in the car, be like, hey my personal goal is to learn one thing from every passenger, you know, drop some wisdom on me. What can I gain? Whatever. Yeah. Oh my gosh. People would eat that up too. I mean, I bet you could write a book about it. I don't know. It's a great idea. Honestly, even in the, some experiences I've had with Uber drivers is they'll find out what I do. And, you know, we work with franchises and restaurants and things. And many times around the town, they'll say, Oh my gosh, I drive around these five different restaurant owners all the time. Here's the guy's number. Here's his name. You know, they, they pick that information up anyway, but to actually go in intentionally trying to gain something like that in a city with a heavy concentration of people you want to learn from, I think is, is an amazing idea. I love it. It's so funny like, how no, no downside to that whatsoever. No, I mean, I, I, and I think there's so many opportunities like this. If you start asking yourself and obviously we're big on this at Praxis, which is why, why we launched the company. But if you start saying, what do most people do to get from sort of where they are into a career that they're interested in? And most people sort of say, well, I'll go to college and that gets them a little closer, but it doesn't do a ton of work. You still got to sort of work several different jobs, do different stuff, whatever. But if you just said that alone, okay, this is like five years on average and you know, whatever, 50, 60 plus grand on average. What, what other things could I do? Like, what are some other ways I could try to master a subject, you know, and, and one of our practice participants uh, had this great presentation about podcasting. You could just say, I want to get, I want to master quantum mechanics. I'm going to launch a podcast and I'm going to email 50 of the top thinkers in that field and see if I can get 10 of them to come on a podcast. And now I've interviewed them and now I've got a connection with them. I've got all this, like, there's just so many more ways. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of how you started, right? You were, you were like, 12 breaking child labor laws, working, uh, working at a bakery and seeing how, <laughs> how the business was run. Right. Absolutely. That, there was no Uber in those 12, days. It was, yeah. It was definitely well before I could drive. <laughs> you didn't need Uber. You just walked through the ghetto to get to work. <laughs> yeah, Uber was like a guy who would carry you on his back, you know, with no, car. no, it was our bikes, man. Everywhere. It's usually bikes, usually bikes. Good point. So, all right. Two other quick topics. Uh, philosophers versus Tony Robbins. That one, you got to lead me into what that means. And I I will, I will. And nootropics. Are you familiar with nootropics? I am not. I wasn't either. So this was a question off the website 
uh, the, uh, if you go to isaacmorehouse.com, you can sign up for midweek quick hits, a wonderful Wednesday email. Uh, but you those can also those ask Isaac I do get those. a little, uh, question. So somebody submitted this. They just said, do you use any new tropics? And if so, uh, what are your thoughts or something? And so I had to look it up and I thought I'd heard of it and maybe it's pronounced nootropics. I'm not sure, but, um, it's like smart drugs, like enhancing your cognitive function, um, there's all kinds of different ones. It's kind of a big trend right now. So you're around like, like Red Bull. World. <laughs> yeah. So maybe Red Bull is, I don't know if that would count technically. <laughs> I'm not sure. So, so you don't use any like smart drugs or anything like that. I don't, I'm afraid of those kind of things, honestly. I don't know why, but I, I run at a pretty high level. I've been told, um, kind of regardless. And I, I do drink a lot of caffeine. Um, so I don't, I'm not, not necessarily opposed to them. I just, some reason I'm a little sketchy that like the power I would feel from that would be hard to ever not use again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or that's... use regularly, like all the time. So I kind of like feel pretty good now. I don't want to feel like normal is, is dragging. Yeah. Yeah. That, so I kind of have a similar, um, let me may remember who asked the question. Oh, Leonard Marino, Leonard, thank you for the question. Um, so I don't use any nootropics. I hope I'm pronouncing them right. Um, so I don't have any, the other part of the question was, if so, what do you recommend and why? I don't have any to recommend. I am like theoretically fascinated by them. And I like, I want other people to use them and tell me about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely with you. Completely with you. Cause I'm not opposed to, there's ways to make humans better it, it, that are not, you know, something that we, how much caffeine do you drink? Ooh, man, that's a good question. I'd say, I'd love to say three cups of coffee a day, but it's probably more like seven. And do you feel like you shouldn't or are you like, no, that's perfectly cool? I, I think caffeine's okay. But I think I think there's too much and probably three cups is where I'd like to be. And I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah. When I do much beyond, it's I think that starts to just become like a, too much of anything for your body is probably not great. And I think that's too much at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm the same way. And with these drugs, even even we've talked about ayahuasca, which is not a nootropic, but it's almost like a therapeutic, like to you know, sort of help you discover parts of your past that you're dealing with on an emotional level that you didn't know about, whatever. And and I love it all theoretically, and I love talking to people who have who have done these things. Um, but there's just some part of me that always just, <laughs> I always just want to like watch someone else try it. I always want. Yeah, to yeah. You want some. Thing. You want some some proof points. I, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. And I don't have a logical argument for why I'm hesitant. I just kind of I don't know. That's maybe one of the few areas where maybe I'm kind of risk averse. Yeah, I, I think I might be in the same boat. Interesting. Okay, Which so is, there's not many of those for me, but that's I think that might be. Yeah, it. yeah. We know it's not driving the lane. You're like, uh, <laughs> relentless, what was I gonna say? fearless, you're, abandoned. You're like one giant name calling duck. It's a, it's a bad pun. An offensive foul. Get it? Oh, wow. That's, that is a bad pun. Isn't that's, that horrible? It came to me in the shower today. That is, that's almost depressing. And I usually don't <laughs> save puns to use them. I like just do them on the spot. It feels like cheating. But <laughs> I just, I knew there'd be a spot. Whereas my approach is more like, what is that movie? Uh, extremely loud and incredibly close. That's kind of my, my defensive <laughs> philosophy. Um, okay, so the last one, Philosophers versus Tony Robbins. So have, right. you, did, have you watched the Netflix show, I Am Not Your Guru, or the movie? I, I, yeah, I did, actually. Did you like accident. it? Uh, I watched the whole thing. I finished it. It was okay. Yeah, I thought it was okay. It was less 
it wasn't as good as I had hoped after Same the, here. the like Tim the Ferriss episode. I was excited about what was going to come and then it never really. Yeah. I listened there. to the Tim Ferriss podcast, uh, the most recent interview with Tony Robbins and it was really, really amazing. And he talked about this. And so I was like, okay, I'll watch How it. does Tim Ferriss do that? He takes people that I don't find that interesting. And somehow after I hear him on his show, I'm like a huge fan of whoever it is almost. I know. It's kind of interesting. I, I'm trying to tap into that. I think one thing. You do, you, you do a good job of that too. He just, he his, his, he's getting a little more A-list. No, I mean, he's got, right he's now. got a level. Well, I've got you today. So I'm, good point. You know, you're I'm moving, moving up. up. Yeah. I think they sit down and have like several drinks in his house and then just talk for three. I don't know. I got to figure out the secret. Yeah, but, I agree. Somehow it, it works. But the reason, so I started thinking about this and I thought I'd choose Tony Robbins because everybody, whether it's he's, fair or He's not, got a brand. He's got a brand. He's got a brand and you usually associate it with, like and before I heard him on, on Tim Ferriss, I totally did. Just like cheesy, self-helpy, whatever. The kind of thing that intellectuals really, especially sort of don't like. And I started thinking about what is a philosopher? And the in, in modern day, the term has kind of been captured by academia, where a philosopher is someone who gets paid to do philosophy at a university and has a PhD in it and publishes papers. That's kind of the most common use of the term today. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But when you think back, like the, the ancient philosophers, some of the things that they all had in common was they often had a whole bunch of followers who wanted to sort of emulate them to improve their lives. And also they, they had the ear of very high power people. So whether it's like, you know, Machiavelli, uh, or, um, you know, the ancient Greeks, like these were people who, you know, the Stoics certainly they were called on. I do know Donald Trump is pretty big fans of Tony Robbins. Well, see, so so this is my thing. So they, <laughs> so the philosophers of old were like the the people. They had wisdom about how to succeed in the world, and so you would call on them, high power people, and say, "Hey, help me! I need your counsel." And today, I was like, philosophers today, I can't imagine some Fortune 500 CEO calling up some philosopher at Ohio State University who just published a paper on epistemology and saying, hey, sure, I sure. need some help. But who would they call? And I started thinking they would call like the Tony Robbins type people. And so it brought up this interesting question. If philosophy is about living the examined life, a, a deep level of introspection and examination of yourself and the world in order to live a better and fuller life, which many people, even professional philosophers today would probably agree with, then the, the philosophers of today are probably more like these coaches and sort of cheesier self, self-help guys. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you consider philosophy as, as sort of a very pragmatic guy? Yeah, no, that's great. As a pragmatic guy that literally somehow never had a philosophy class, even though I probably wish I would have. Uh, somehow I avoided all the interesting classes in college and stuck mostly See, I to, only account, went to accounting. Ones. <laughs> <laughs> I got done quick, but I don't think I've picked up some things that I maybe would have been interesting. Maybe I'll do the Praxis Philosophy course and I can, we got you I can covered, come man. up to speed. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, the, the pure definition of philosophy, I, I, I wouldn't know going in, but based on just kind of your lead in there, um, I, I've always considered philosophy kind of as you described it in the academic world. It's not something that people are going to go reference for practical day-to-day stuff. It's stuff that's fun to think about when you're having some bourbon and a cigar <laughs> and, you know, and musing on things where I always think of more kind of a Tony Robbins, a Tim Ferriss, the kind of the life hack type people, you 
you know, what's, what's a way that I can be better? And there's all these different ways to do it. And some will resonate with some people and some will with other people. It's not all universal, but there's a lot of things you can just do to, to be a better person and to lead a better life. So if philosophy is kind of about that, then I think you're spot on that those kind of people are absolutely kind of a practical day-to-day philosopher in this day and age. Um, I certainly agree with you that I don't think anybody's going to the academic types to, to get answers for how to approach life, where I think these kind of life coach, motivational speaker types almost do, do certainly have large audiences, sometimes very reputable audiences. Um, and not always, but you know, that certainly <laughs> can be the case. So yeah, yeah I, I think you're, you're definitely on something very interesting there. I, I'd have to do a little more homework in history, and I will. If you want to bring me on later, I'll, I promise you I will buff up on this stuff and we can have a a more interesting dialogue on it, but yeah, a very interesting point. Well, I need to do some more too. And I think, I think I might do that. I was thinking about, um, like maybe how, how the, the understanding of what a philosopher is has changed over time. And, and I think maybe sometime around the turn of the century, there was this thing called new thought philosophy. So people like Napoleon Hill, who's famous for mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, Napoleon. some of this, they were kind of part of the at their time, it was like new thought philosophy was sort of a philosophy of success and life. And they and they saw themselves as philosophers, as part of this very old tradition from Stoics to, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. um, you know, about how to live a good life. And they consider that part of philosophy. And sometime around there, that was sort of because they were like a lot better at monetizing and marketing that like, hey, we will improve your life. Pay us money to do it. <laughs> buy our books. Come to our seminars. There's something about that that kind of turned off the more speculative philosophers sure. and this sure. big divergence came and one and one maintained the label philosophy, the the academy, and the other sort of became self-help or whatever the newest. Maybe that is. was purely because philosophy didn't market well. In an That's what I'm wondering. You needed to sell it on a massive scale. You know, maybe it wasn't so much that they got pushed out as they much as they opted out to a new, a new name, a new title, but that, they're still doing philosophy. That's what I'm wondering, too, is like I would almost say. And there's just as many good or bad, you know, philosophers among the self-help section as there are good and bad philosophers among sure, academic. I mean, sure. there are a lot of terrible and cheesy academic philosophers. Not cheesy, but like, yeah, yeah, needlessly obscure, whatever. Um, so I don't know. I'm kind of wondering if there's any, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to start any movement to change the usage of the term. I, I don't like fighting battles over words. But personally, I wonder if like there's any benefit to be had to sort of to sort of apply the term more generously and think about. But you've what... always made me think about that because you've, you've oftentimes, even, even years ago when you were meeting with, you know, successful entrepreneurs who are maybe just past, you know, retirement and things like that and learning from them. And you always told me, you know, I think the most philosophical people out there are entrepreneurs or, or, or some of the most, you know, yeah. um, that they're, they have a philosophy. They just don't t- tag at that and they go live their life and actually execute on it. So I, I do think the general concept you're coming up with now that, that the idea of philosophy is probably far more wide ranging than, than we give it credit in kind of this world where everyone's been to college and gone to a philosophy class. Um, you know, that's probably a very, very true thing. Yeah. So I'm almost trying to, I'm going to see, maybe I'll, maybe I'll turn this into an article or something. I'm going to try to boil down like, okay, what, what do I think is philosophy? If, if we considered it living an examined life and you know, examining your life and, and sort of big concepts in the world, trying to understand sort of causal relationships or whatever in order to achieve your ends. If that's the definition, then who is a philosopher and who is a good philosopher? 
really, really might change a lot. Um, so something to think about. Maybe Tony Robbins is today's Aristotle. <laughs> let's. It almost let's, hurts to say. Let but, me digest you know. that a little before agreeing on that point. He might be a philosopher, but let's 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 kind of get the ranking, the prayer, the ranking in the right spot. <laughs> I, I hope my philosopher friends are, are listening to this. I have many good friends who are uh, professional <laughs> academic philosophers. All right, Levi, this has been absolutely awesome to have you fill in for TK. We do one thing at the end of every Fridays with TK. Do you know what it is? Are you a listener? I am. Okay, so what are we going to do? This is At a, the end of Fridays? Yeah. Well, I'm a selective listener. I listen to your TK show. <laughs> I know TK too well. I figure like, there's nothing new I'm like. Get it's out really of hard to tell totally, when I'm on four times speed. On, you know. Totally. Exactly. I do everything at four times speed too. All so. right. Fair enough. I am. I thought you were one of our four listeners, but I'm. I'm deeply wounded. So we we recommend a book, an article, a podcast, something at the end of each show. So <laughs> recommendations. For me, I will make, in keeping with the sort of extended lifespan, uh, what does this mean? The book Bold by Peter Diamandis, really fun, really exciting, fast read. Um, Highly recommend it. What about you, Levi? Excellent. I'm actually reading that right now. Um, I'm going to go with one. You've probably referenced it many times, but it's it's my favorite book uh, in the last, probably one of my favorite books altogether. It was definitely my favorite book in the last several years. Uh, Zero to One, Peter Thiel. Tons of good stuff in there, whether you're in entrepreneurship, um, just general. It's got some philosophical stuff in there as well. It's just a really, really good book. So it, that's probably come up on your show many, many times, but that is, I'm going to go with. No, that's a great book. Great rack. And yeah, that's actually a phenomenal example of a of a deeply philosophical person who is sort of applying those insights into the world of, uh, you know, entrepreneurship, investment, etc. I love it. All right, man. Hey, this was fun. And, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on the show sometime in the future and you can, you can pick whatever topic and you can, you can, uh, study up to your heart's content if you want. Sounds good. I, I I'll tell you, I might do that, but I probably won't. Practice <laughs> <it>, but. <laughs> it's all right. It's always good to end it amicably and pretend that we're going to do it again. You know, sounds good. Sounds all right. Good. All Talk right, to you later. Yep.